You know what keeps playing in my head? I was thinking... (laughs) I was thinking about this. I don't know why, but I think it came to me last night when I was texting you because FYI, everybody, Stephanie is an early to bed person. I am in bed by 1030. (laughs) Yeah. So it is pretty much unheard of that she'll be awake after I've gone to bed. And I checked on her because I saw that she was sharing stories on Felicetric's Instagram. (laughs) I was like, I take it you're still on the road because there's no way you'd still be up (laughs) otherwise. And she said, yes, I'm hanging in there trying to keep Greg awake, which by the way, first season, Greg is on the podcast as well, if you're curious about our buddy. Anyway, for some reason, I was like picturing the two of you like road warriors, you know, in the van, listening to Journeys faithfully. (laughs) (laughs) There's something about like, road ain't no place to raise a family. (laughs) Right down the line, it's been you and me. (laughs) Oh, girl, you stand by me. (laughs) Yes. Welcome to the Viola-Centric Podcast. We are two curious violists finding inspiration through authentic and challenging conversations in the professional music world. I'm Liz. And I'm Steph. Let's jump in the deep end. Tell me about your day yesterday, Stephanie. You had a whirlwind trip. It was a whirlwind for sure. You want to talk about living the dream. This is what living the dream sounded like for me yesterday. I got up at six o'clock in the morning and got the kids off to school. And then I drove about an hour in rush hour traffic to meet a group of musicians who are going up to New York City for the American Pops to do this Global Citizens Award celebration. And so we all hopped in this 15 passenger van (laughs) We drove up to New York City and then rehearsed, had a buffet dinner for like 30 minutes, performed the award ceremony, which are, they sound so glamorous, you guys. Award ceremonies are not glamorous. They're kind of brutal, actually. You're playing (laughs) walk-on music for celebrities to come up on stage. And then there's a couple of featured numbers or whatever. Most of it is just sitting around listening to people talk. And it's such a lovely group of musicians. We're all friends. The conductor is Luke. You guys, if you haven't listened to Luke's episode, please go back to season two and listen to Luke Frazier. Yeah. His episode's called The Grocery Store Test as of now. So we played the ceremony and great performances, celebrities, blah, blah, blah. And then we all changed back into our street clothes, hopped back in the 15 passenger van at 1030 at night. And then we got back to the area and back to our cars at about 2.15 in the morning, this morning. So I'm running on about four hours of not very high quality sleep. But you know what this just reminds me of is that old adage that's how do you get a musician to complain? (laughs) Get them a gig. I've also been traveling a lot, but not for something as glamorous as that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just a lot of trips back and forth to the hometown. And yeah, it's been quite a crazy month. And I don't know, I just feel like I keep thinking of that phrase, drinking from a fire hose. The beginning of the year has turned into that. It's good to be busy and go through that craziness and yeah. Yeah. And the uncertainty yeah. time that we were just talking about in the last episode, the empty <laughs> calendar. 
What what happened to that? What happened to that? So this just goes to show you, just take it easy. Take a deep breath. It'll come. Trust. That's right. Trust. Yes, exactly. What's been really fun is sort of digging back into the creative aspects of Viola Centric and where we want things to go. And then also, I've been having a lot of conversations concerning programming with my quartet in the last couple of weeks for the kids and for us. And that's been really fun to have these conversations about what sort of music we want to present and what sort of music we want to teach. Because I think that the more thoughtful we are with that process, the more that's going to translate to an audience or to these young musicians who are, some of them are learning string quartet for the first time. Some of them are graduating this year and probably won't have many opportunities to play string quartet after they graduate. So we're talking about like, what would be a really cool experience for them or what piece of music is really going to speak to them. And I think that ties in so well. I was thinking a lot about the conversation we have with Liz when we were having these conversations with my quartet about this active choice in what you present to your audiences or what resonates with you inside in terms of what you're working on. And I thought that was a really cool part of our conversation with her. Oh, yeah, I love that. She's doing so much really cool work. And just being the voice that gets to present that to the world is a very special and very important role. And I don't think we think of ourselves as messengers enough. Mm. Yeah, I don't think so either. And it's true. I think we have the ability to give voice to specific subject matter to the people who have some sort of message out there for the world. That one project that she talked about, it was called Songs of Hope, right? Mm Mm-hmm a really cool thing that she's going to be doing. Yeah, you can find all of this on her website, which we will put in the episode notes so that you can look it up. Backing up a little bit, Liz is a pianist here in the DC area that we get to work with. We've played with her in American Pops and other places. I think it was really cool to talk with her just because of the unique path that she has carved for herself. I really feel like I don't think about pianists enough as freelancers, fellow freelancers, but Of course they are. We just don't see them in the orchestral world. They're collaborative. They help by accompanying and collaborating with other instrumental soloists. And it was just really interesting to hear her perspective as someone who's not necessarily in the orchestral world, but still considers herself a freelancer. Yeah. (laughs) I just had this thought about that separation between piano and all of the other instruments. They're in their own little bubble, even in college. I don't know if it was like this for you, but I just had this flashback to, at least at Temple, we had our main music building, which was built during the 60s race riots. So it was basically like just solid brick with only windows at the very top of the building. (laughs) Kind of like a a bunker or a prison in order to practice. And old white painted cork in the practice room. Like it's just the bleakest environment you can imagine for making music. And then there was this other building that was built later on called Rock Hall. It's the one that they showed us in our orientations. Uh. (laughs) We're like, this building is so beautiful. And the recital hall in there is gorgeous. And there are these state-of-the-art practice rooms downstairs. All of them have grand pianos in them. And all of them are almost always reserved for piano students. And I get it because they need the nice instruments, obviously. But anytime we would have chamber music with piano, we would go over there and it was always a special treat 
to get out of the bunker. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, but I always felt so in awe of the idea that here are these musicians who are literally creating an orchestra with their four extremities. And yet there are not as many obvious opportunities to carve a career out. But Liz has really become this, what she calls herself, collaborative pianist. And she explores all of these projects in a really creative way. And I think that must be an inspiring thing to hear as a pianist. And certainly for us too to know, yeah, even if the gigs aren't ample, there are things you can do to carve out your career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's just a lovely person. You're going to hear about her upbringing and how that shaped her and her interests and things that what she wants to perform and bring to the public ear. We really had a great time speaking with her. She's a friend and a colleague. And we hope you enjoy this conversation with Liz Hill. It's that time of year. We're back to school and we are back to gigging. Even if you're not mentally ready for the season, you can count on our season sponsor, Potter Violins, to get your equipment ready. When's the last time you rehaired your bow, Steph? Oh, I feel like it was recently, but I bet it's been over six months. So I got to get over there and get it freshened up. Oh, and I need new backup strings and an instrument adjustment. Sounds like it might be about time. Yeah. I do love to get in there for a visit to our favorite technicians as we approach the change of season. Hmm, maybe I need a new case too. (laughs) And as we've said before, if you need a rental instrument, they're the place to go. My daughter and many of my students rent from Potters, and the instruments are really fantastic, even the smaller violas. Yes. Get back to your music this season with confidence by visiting Potter Violins so your equipment will be ready, even if you might need a bit more of a warm-up. Stephanie and I are so happy to welcome back the Arcrest as a sponsor for season three. We have worked with Aaron and Tigran, who are the inventors of this revolutionary shoulder rest solution for about a year now, and we are all in. We love supporting a small business like theirs that makes a product that really works and continues to evolve. That's right, and we happen to know that they are always working on new improved prototypes. But what we've always loved is that the Arcrest is simple and elegant and completely customizable. You can choose the thickness of the padding and place it virtually anywhere you want on the back of your instrument. And playing with it allows for complete freedom of movement. Not to mention that it makes your instrument resonate more fully because it doesn't dampen the sound. So if you're ready to learn more, visit thearcrest.com. And new for this season, use the code VIOLACENTRIC at checkout for 10% off your purchase with Arcrest. This season is brought to you in part by Aria Lights, the LED music stand light brand chosen by professionals. Liz and I can honestly say that we are thrilled to welcome Aria Lights as a sponsor. I don't know about you, Liz, but I've been obsessed with Aria Lights ever since they came on the scene. I saw professionals in the Opera House Orchestra using them, and when my husband bought me one for Christmas last year, I swear, I did a little happy dance when I opened the package. (laughs) These are hands down, the best LED music stand lights available. Yes, and they're used by lots of pros. Organizations like the Philly Orchestra, Toronto, New York, Cleveland, LA Opera, Frozen on Broadway, and so many more. Aria Light's beautiful design not only lights four pages of music completely evenly from top to bottom, it also shields the conductor, other musicians, and the audience from that annoying blindness-inducing light bleed from poorly angled stand lights. 
if you know, you know. Oh yes, I know. And there are so many features that make these the best option on the market. So just know that if you're ready to upgrade your stand light, you cannot go wrong with Aria lights. Learn more at ariolights.com or by finding the link in our episode notes. And tell them Liz and Steph at Feelocentric sent you. Do you like to go by doctor? Oh, I haven't thought about that in a long time. <laughs> in the introduction, that's fine. But I think through the interview, just Liz is good. You don't want us to call you Dr. Hill the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Hill, what is your sun sign? No. <laughs> okay. Pianist Dr. Liz G. Hill is known for her work as a solo performer, educator, and lecturer. Liz dedicates much of her career to bridging cultures together through music, and is a recognized leader in contemporary music advocacy. She is the co-founder of her duo Meraki, which focuses on performing music with the intent of creating a greater social impact. Liz is also the pianist of Balance Campaign. And a little aside, for those of you who listened in season two, you may remember our friend Sandy Choi, who is the violinist of Balance Campaign. Their focus lies exclusively on commissioning and performing works by underrepresented composers. Liz is the collaborative pianist for the National Philharmonic Chorale and Chamber Series. She is also a dedicated pedagogue and member of the collaborative piano faculty at the Heifetz International Music Institute. I think it's pretty safe to say she keeps herself very busy. We <laughs> have had the joy of working with Liz in and around the DC area. She's a fantastic person, pianist, really warm and lovely person. Welcome to the Veal Centric Podcast, Liz. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. It's so great to have you. I'm starting off with a sort of random factoid that we discovered about you when we were reading your information, that you were raised in Alaska. Yeah, I was raised in Anchorage, Alaska. We're so curious to know what was it like to grow up in that state that's part of the country, but kind of not part of the country? And how did that shape you in your career? It's funny because growing up in Anchorage, it felt what I would think of as normal. And now looking back, especially I have a five-year-old son. So now kind of looking at his life and his experience, I realized that it was quite odd. <laughs> like a lot of snow, moose in your front yard or backyard, <laughs> things like that. Anchorage, at least, is not in one of the areas where it's dark for months and months, but we did have very short days. And so it could be below zero, but at school, they'd send you out to recess because it was one of the few moments of daylight that you would have. Oh, my goodness. But again, for me, I was like, oh, this is normal. <laughs> we all put on snowsuits to go to school and take it off and have regular clothes. Yeah. Oh, my God. They do a really good job in Alaska of using the environment and the culture and creating like a natural community there. So it doesn't feel odd when you're in it. And then when you move away to the lower 48, then you look back and you're like, oh, that was a little strange. <laughs> it's a little bit. The lower 48. The lower 48. That's what we call it. <laughs> What's the shortest day? So the shortest day that I can remember would be like sun up around 9, 9.30. And then it would be dusk or a little darker than dusk by the time we'd get out of school. So oh. by about three o'clock. Yeah. Wow. That sounds awful. And what's weird is I am a very bad sleeper here where we have pretty normal hours. 
whenever I've gone home, I haven't been back to Alaska in probably about six or seven years after my parents retired and moved. Mm. But every time I would go back during college, I would sleep like a baby there. So I think my circadian rhythm is just used to being there. Yeah. But on the flip side, in the summer, you could go to like a rooftop bar at 11.30 at night and it would be, <laughs> it would be pretty bright. <laughs> So you do, we make up for it a little bit in the summertime. <laughs> That's more my speed. When I think of Alaska, I think of Native Alaskans. Was that part of your culture? Every year in school, they do something to emphasize the Native Alaskan history. And so you grow up with it being a very important and connecting part of your education there. You know a lot about the different tribes that were from the state that are still in the state. You know a lot about the history behind what was happening before it was actually a state and what it is now. And lots of musical presentations, lots of learning drum songs. It's very much infused into the education culture there. That's so interesting that in one state, there's such an emphasis, but I feel like you know, there are Native American tribes that are in Virginia, and they do learn about it. I know because my kids did their Native American focus last year in fourth grade, but it's not such a big part of every year. It's just mm -hmm. like, let's take this one year in focus as opposed to having it infiltrate all aspects of their education. It's so interesting that they place such an emphasis there and great. Yeah, I think it's wonderful. And that's always going to be one of my fondest memories of growing up there was in general, just teaches you to love and appreciate other people mm -hmm. and other cultures and have this natural curiosity for what is not natural to you or not your home life. And that's probably why much of my musical focus now tends to be on, on music that is coming from other cultures or somewhat inspired by other cultures or to help express compassion for others. It probably has a lot to do with my upbringing there. Yeah, that's fantastic. I had that similar experience, Stephanie, of just like one year. And in fact, it probably was fourth grade. But also, when I look back at the projects we did in central Pennsylvania... Problematic. <laughs> cringy. Yeah, very cringy. We've come a long way. Let's hope. Yeah. I hope so. But yeah, the acknowledgement is really important. And I love that that is something that has informed your decisions for where you've shaped your career too musically, because I think it's just so important that we keep going, moving in that direction. So what made you decide to leave Alaska and pursue your life in what could arguably be sort of the opposite environment, Washington, D.C.? <laughs> I always tell people I kind of moseyed up the highway from, from college. I went to a really small all-women's college in Stanton, Virginia, Mary Baldwin College, which is now at university. At the time, I went there because they had an early entrance program, so I could leave high school a little early and start college. Oh. And I went as a biochem music double major, and I was only keeping music because, oh, this is easy, I'm kind of good at it, like this will be a fun little second major, why not? I'm really going to go to med school, though. That was the plan. Wow. And my senior year, something just kind of caught me. And I don't think I would have used the word passion then, but something inside me knew that it was more important for me to pursue music than medicine. 
So I went to James Madison for my master's. I like moved up the highway 30 minutes. <laughs> I went to JMU too for my undergrad. Did you? Yeah. Oh, I think I did know that once upon a time. Go Dukes. <laughs> and that was like a huge difference from Mary Baldwin. It's a huge school and I loved every moment of it. It was such a great opportunity. There is where I like really fell into the collaborative piano training and working with other people. And after that, I had a couple of friends who had gone to Catholic for their doctorate. And there's a teacher that I really wanted to study with there. So I was like, well, it's just two hours more up the highway. Why not? So that's how I ended up in D.C. going to Catholic. This is the six degrees of violocentric separation because I got my master's at Catholic. So, Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Liz and I were talking about your career, and I was reminded about hearing somewhere that freelancers have what we call a portfolio career, mm. where you're like pulling things from here and from there, from different genres. You're always working with different groups and different pairings of people. Do pianists consider themselves freelancers? Do you consider yourself a freelance musician? I do. I think generally we either think of ourselves as primarily educators or freelancers. I teach a little bit, but my schedule is pretty split between teaching and performing. So I consider myself more so a freelancer in that regard. Pianists, we might tend to classify ourselves with what do we play the most? Do you think of yourself as like a soloist or a concert pianist? And I kind of think of myself as more chamber pianist slash orchestral pianist. So while I love playing solo music, I try to fill most of my time in chamber or orchestra. How do you decide what projects to take on next? What do you say yes to? What do you say no to? That's a good question. <laughs> it's nice once you've been like playing for a while because you can get choosy after a while. I think after I graduated with my master's, one of my teachers told me, don't say no or people won't ask you. So just say yes. All heard that at one point in our career. Classic advice. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> I don't know. Once I felt like I had enough experience and was getting enough offers to where I could be a little pickier about what I was choosing. I look a lot at programming. I'm all about making sure that there's a balanced representation of good music by all composers. These days, you know, we talk a lot about the lack of representation on programs. So I'm very thoughtful about that. But at the same time, I love to expose an audience to new music that they haven't heard. And that could be by Rachmaninoff that nobody plays, or it could be music by Anthony Green. I'll give him a shout out, who's a living composer who is getting his works out there. So I like to present music that will just kind of catch an audience and maybe connect what I'm thinking about the music to the audience. I love that. Finding those moments to really connect and bring the audience mm -hmm. something that, they, that they've never heard, but they could connect to. When I've gone to concerts in the past, I've seen things on the program and been like, oh, I don't really know this. Am I going to like it? Am I going to connect with it? So I love the idea of being exposed to more music because not only does your appreciation grow, but your palette of expression grows as a musician. That's why I like hearing these new things. Mm -hmm. And from a freelancer perspective, too, the idea that we can be selective in what we choose to play Mm -hmm. 
This is a question I'll pose to both of you because I'm just thinking about it in my own head. If you could go back in time and be in that phase where we were like, yes to everything, because there's so many of us who are in that phase for a long time. Even just acknowledging that it's possible to say no (laughs) takes a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah. Would you be more selective if you're somebody who's younger and freelancing or would you still be in that say yes to everything mindset? That is such a good question. I feel like it could go both ways because I've definitely had past performances or collaborative experiences where I'm like, oh, the lesson from that was always say no to this person (laughs) in the future or always say no to this piece. But I feel like you do have to go through that a little bit. Mm-hmm. You you have to live those lessons to kind of inform your playing and inform your decision making in the future too. So I think maybe there is a little bit of a balance. I do think one of the cultures that we could stand to diminish a little bit is that culture of overworking yourself. Don't sleep, don't eat, practice all the time. And when you're not practicing, you should be on a stage somewhere. That is a bit much (laughs) and it's unhealthy. And I think that's why we have so many colleagues or we have students who break at some point and it's just too much. They eventually find careers that they really can be rooted in and be happy with. But I often wonder if it's because we've like forced them to have to do that. And I wonder if we just make it a little bit more like... (laughs) normal, like sleep a little bit, you'll play better if you're if you're healthy, if you're mentally and physically healthy, and you have autonomy in the programming that you're playing, I think all of that could be a little bit more all encompassing. Yeah, for sure. I wonder if that's an American thing. (laughs) Do other musicians have this same feeling like the hustle culture type thing? Or is it just American? (laughs) (laughs) who don't know how to take a break. I mean, none of us here can really answer Uh, that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, well, we'll pose the question to anyone who doesn't live in America to shout out what their experience is. Yes. Do you too feel the the need to hustle? (laughs) I just remember I was doing this workshop about writing a script for the vision you have for your life. And it was, it was a very cool thing, but I was talking about this burnout and I had this mental image of me like, alienating all of my family and friends because all I do is work and I can't stop. And that that is the sad ending to my story. But the happy ending is something like striking some kind of balance. And I'm describing it to this person who doesn't live in the United States. And this person is Mm. like, it sounds like life is really hard there. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, it is. It is. is. There are trade offs to living in this country. There's some of it that's great. And there's some of it that's culturally very challenging, because I do think we get sucked up into this mentality. And it takes work to let it go. You know what I've just started thinking, and this could be like way out in left field, but America was settled by immigrants. Of course, there were native folks here. But we all have that immigrant culture ingrained in us. In the early days of when your ancestors came here, you had to struggle. You had to go explore the frontier if you were European American or whatever. Or you didn't arrive by choice. Right. Or you didn't arrive by choice. (laughs) And we have that need to like establish ourselves in a new land. And I don't know, maybe it's just that that's part of our culture. Mm, Yeah. There's something to that, like, stick-to-itiveness that is just Right, and that's, very that's what American culture has become, yeah. and maybe it's rooted in that, oh my gosh, we're mm-hmm. all not from here. 
to tie it back to music, we talk about this a lot, Stephanie and I, Liz, that it is a culture that we're given when we decide we're going to be quote unquote serious about music. That is absolutely the message that we're fed. And even now you can see it with students and the more of us who are willing to offer the possibility that it doesn't have to be like that. I think the more that culture can shift, but it takes a lot of work. I'll use COVID as the time period that everybody was kind of forced to reflect on themselves and their happiness and just their role in life in their own world and in the greater world. One of the things that I've had to make a very personal choice about was to really decide what it is that I want to do with my music making that makes me still feel true to myself. But also, how do I treat myself well? Like, what are the things that I need to do to take care of me, to make sure that I am healthy and whole so I can make better music or so I can make better decisions about music or programming? If I know I need to take a break or if I need to take a couple of days off, it has to be a very intentional decision. And it almost has to be like this inner conversation of, you're going to take a couple of days off. You're not going to touch the piano. When you come back, you're going to sound really bad but it's going to be okay. (laughs) And you're going to forgive yourself in the future because you need this. And it's all better because you're giving yourself some time. And I have to do that because it's completely opposite of, of what I was taught. Like, no, you don't break during summer break. You learn all your music for the next year. (laughs) Thinking of our own personal histories and having to redirect the ship in that way in our own lives. Oh, yeah. I just wrote in my Google Calendar this morning. I was looking ahead. I picked up something. So I put that in the calendar and I noticed the next day doesn't have anything on it right now. And it's coming off of a lot of crazy weeks. And I actually put in the calendar, Liz is taking this day off. (laughs) Good for you. Good. And actually, because it's the fall, I I put a little football emoji next to it. So it's like you could just sit on your couch and watch football all day that day. Just take the day off and don't do anything. And I put it in the calendar so that I could start mentally preparing for that I'm not going to work that day. Okay, what day is this? Because I'm going to check on you. (laughs) (laughs) She is too. Watch. She's going to text me. I have my pen. I'm always making notes. She's like, are you, she's going to be like, are you working? You better not respond to this text. That's what I'm going to (laughs) say. Your phone better be on silent, girl. I'll just text you a bunch of football emojis. Yeah, there you (laughs) go. Yes, perfect. Thank you, girls. You were giving me accountability, which Uh I need sometimes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We We all need that. (laughs) It's hard, too, because we are blending a career with something that we are deeply passionate about. Yes. So actually, often a lot of the no's we have to say are not no's because we don't want to do a certain thing. It's because we need it. And sometimes that's that inner teenager that's like, but, but, but I want to do this too. Instead of the wiser self saying, yeah, you need that break. Like you said, having that dialogue with yourself, I think that's immensely helpful. (laughs) Gonna talk to that little rebellious part of you in there that's fighting you. Yeah. The little like six-year-old that's like, no naps, no naps. (laughs) And I'm like, please just take a nap. I just need a nap. (laughs) Now that's pretty familiar to you in life, isn't it? Isn't that how old your son is? Yeah, he's five. And it's like the things that he protests, I would pay for. I would love, I would love a snack. I would love a nap. Naps are (laughs) wasted on the young. For sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I would love to go to bed at 8.30. That sounds awesome. (laughs) 
it seems like you keep yourself very busy with all sorts of collaborations. And you mentioned the collaborative piano track that you found yourself on starting with JMU. So how does it work for you to seek out relationships with people, find the right people to do these jobs with? For pianists, it's kind of funny. We sometimes get a little bit, I don't mean it as negatively as it sounds, but we get a little typecasted. So I learned a lot of clarinet music when I was at JMU. And partly it was on the recommendation of the clarinet professor there, but also Gabe Dildner, my collaborative teacher there. I, that's when he started pushing that button of, you might like to do this too. But he told me, if you learn this clarinet rep, it's gorgeous for piano and you will always have a job. You'll always have work if you learn both of these Brahms sonatas and you learn this and this and this. <laughs> we play those too. I was going to say, how many violists have you played? Yeah, kill two birds with one stone. It's like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. <laughs> Barely go a year without playing one of those Brahms sonatas. Those are like old friends to me. <laughs> but I like to think of myself Whereas I do have those old favorites and these pieces or this instrumentation that I'm very used to and comfortable working with, I do like to hear the piano in the context of other instrumentation too. I'm one of those who's like, okay, don't just call me for clarinet stuff. I like quartets. I like a trio. I don't think we're all like that. It has to do with the amount of time you have, how much music you want to keep learning and adding to your repertoire. It's so interesting. Mm -hmm. It's a different world. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very different world. And there's this risk that you will want to learn it all, which is a great risk. But that kind of happened to me in the DMA program. It's like, oh, my goodness, I have however many recitals, six recitals to do. And there's so much music. <laughs> but it also really helps you narrow your focus, too. You can't learn everything, especially if I have to pull a program at the last minute or throw a piece, then yeah, that's in my rep. I'm wanting to learn more music that kind of not necessarily was folk based, but had some more of a personal storytelling effect. I did some research on music that was written by immigrant composers during World War II and how they kept their folk sound. It's essentially the only thing that they could keep with them. They couldn't take anything with them, but they had folk music that they could infuse into their works. And finding pieces like that and saying, let's make a program out of this. That's kind of how I run my life these days too. It's like, well, I kind of like this piece or I like this idea. Maybe this theme works. I know these people are free on this day. <laughs> let's see what we can, what we can do. That's great. The lectures that you have coming up. Can you tell us about this and how it came about? Sure. And I will have to say about that one. So I am not a spearhead of that project. I was asked to be a pianist for those performances after the project was developed. So I can't take lecture credit on that one, although I'll, I will be participating in presentations about the project. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons why I like pretty much immediately said yes, when Angela Yoon called me, she and Carl DuPont have put together this project based on interviews of different underrepresented aspects of society. They pulled texts from interviews with undocumented immigrants, texts from interviews with unhoused people, refugees. There's four different types of conversations that they had with people. And they commissioned art songs to be composed based on the text from the interviews. And these are all like incredibly deep and meaningful and dark. 
and a beautiful representation of a very, very heavy topic. But one of those things where if there is something that can make this even more meaningful or even more connecting, to communicate it through art is what makes it more digestible and more memorable too. They've also commissioned art works to be displayed along with our performances too. We start this up next week. We go to Alabama and we're presenting and doing some master classes at a couple of colleges there. And then we'll be at Peabody in October at the beginning of the month. It's just one of those things where she called me and I was like, I don't know why I didn't think of this project, but yes, a hundred percent. I would love to be involved. This is right up my alley. I'm all about telling stories that people don't always hear or don't have access to. And if there's one thing that I can do through music that could help better our society and our culture, I feel like it would be through projects like that. Right. And it goes right to your goal of using what you want to use your music for Mm -hmm. and having a bigger purpose, like a why, why am I doing this? Exactly. The music is beautiful and it just, it's very interesting. And there's so many like layers to peel back. Whenever I learn art songs, I'm constantly practicing and either mouthing the lyrics or sometimes singing along just to know how our parts fit, but also thinking textually what are consonants that I might be covering up, things like that. So the poetry becomes really personal and you play a chord and you're saying a specific word. It's like, oh my goodness, I have to stop for a moment and just think about how fortunate I am to be able to just sit at a piano all day and learn music about some of these really, really big issues that are still going on in our society. You become such an important part of the process for getting those ideas communicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Because the notes are there, but someone has to live them and communicate them to an audience for them to have their real impact. Such a poignant expression of music. Yeah. Yes, that experience when you play a note or a chord along with a word that has some kind of mm-hmm. impact and what that can do to you on the inside and then translating that, that is, yeah, that's such a great way to put it. I have goosebumps right now. You know how (laughs) sometimes you can, this is just completely unrelated, but like food, you can imagine what it's like to eat a lemon and you get that same like tangy feeling in the back of your throat. I can feel that feeling of what it feels like to have a chord, a certain chord and to have that involuntary reaction. Oh yeah, yeah. Same. (laughs) So cool. Yeah. As soon as you said that, Liz, I was like, oh, yeah, I know that feeling. We live mostly in the world of music without words when we're playing it. And there are those moments there, too. And the gratitude piece, how lucky we are that we get to do that. And we get to be that vehicle for someone else to experience it. Definitely. It's interesting just to talk to people after these concerts. You can get some of any type of response, but usually it's people wanting to know more or wanting to tell you how that performance or that particular song or that story really touched them or really affected them. Even more from that, what they might do differently after leaving that concert. So there's just so much that happens with one thoughtful way of programming can spread in so many different ways, which is so cool. And I always leave those things like, 
wow, I feel like I got more out of that than maybe the audience. Wow, this is so interesting and just touching. I just think it's awesome. Absolutely. The joy that you bring to this endeavor is just something to emulate for all of us musicians, but it's also so nice to know that it's in such good hands. It's so important to you that you're willing to take the time and the emotional energy to really communicate what needs to be communicated. Thank you. I love that so much. The ideas for presenting when you get them yourself, I find this really an interesting thread to explore, especially for people who feel like they're not capable of that kind of creativity. I actually Mm -hmm. believe everyone is capable of some kind of creative endeavor. And I've read a book recently that just has me thinking about this a lot. The concept in the book is that ideas are part of our atmosphere. They're just floating around like anything else. And it's in the veil of inspiration. And that inspired ideas catch a person. And then that person has the option to explore them or not. So I think we all have those moments where we're like, oh, I've had this idea that I would do it. Or they see something that happened and they're like, wait a second, I had that idea or whatever. <laughs> um, I love this. That's so true. I'm, I'm referencing Elizabeth Gilbert's Another Liz. Thank you very much. Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic, for those who haven't read it. I'm just thinking about this with respect to these, particularly when you do the research and you formulate a presentation that goes along with your music. Because we all have, of course, the experience of wanting to play a piece of music. But if you have sort of like a creative process that those things come to you, or if mm. it happens more in a collaborative way like this one did. Yeah, I think for me, it's mostly it comes together collaboratively. Like some of the projects that I've done through Meraki or clarinet piano duo, I always think we kind of share like the same brain and mostly the same personality. So we tend to actually text each other with an idea. I'll send her an idea and she'll say, I thought of that like two days ago. And I forgot to text you. We, we tend to do that a lot. We just have this mental connection. But then just continuing to throw things on the drawing board, I think it's always easier and just more enjoyable maybe if you have someone to throw things back and forth with. I tend to overthink a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> it's helpful if I have a collaborative partner who helps bring things back to earth for me. <laughs> or gets me to kind of step outside the box because I just get a little too twisted in all the gears with planning. There are a few projects, one that I'm currently working on that I've chosen to do as like solo projects. And it's kind of like the same mental prep. Like I have to tell myself, this is a solo thing. You're going to be responsible for these things because <laughs> I'm so used to now collaborating. But I do find that it's still very useful for me to at least have someone as a sounding board and just say, am I like being really stupid? Is this something that people would ever actually want to hear? And it's helpful for me to get feedback, even on the solo stuff. We reflect on that a lot as podcasters, because we consider ourselves super duper lucky, or at least I do, to have someone to work with. And Mm -hmm. like (laughs) to tell us if our ideas are bananas or if they're great or if they just need a little tweaking. And I always think about those podcasters who have to do it all by themselves. All alone. Oh, my goodness. And or choose to do it all by themselves. I don't know. It's not me. No, I think it's fair to say that this podcast wouldn't exist if we didn't have the collaborative relationship we found. And it made me smile just hearing you describe your experience with your duo partners, because I 
feel that way about us. Like we both thought about having a podcast and then I waited for Stephanie to say it first. (laughs) (laughs) She didn't want to scare me away. But also, yeah, I mean, I know how social I am, but I would never be able to make this thing happen by myself. So it's, it is really great having a teammate. I'm also highly collaboratively focused and it's actually hard for me to even motivate myself to practice for something that I'm not doing with someone else, to be honest. Maybe to get out of my comfort zone, I need to just schedule something solo. I think it's important to know yourself and just be at peace with how you work and not try and change yourself, right? That's true. That's a good point. I need a collaborative partner to practice excerpts with. Are you ready? (laughs) That's a good idea, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Look, Stephanie, you're going to do that with me, right? (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Someone's going to add me and say, I'll help you practice excerpts. I'll be like, I'm just kidding. I don't really want to do that. Sounds like a horrible, horrible use of my time. (laughs) Be careful what you wish for. But just having that sounding board, even if it's a project that's on your own, having support in that way, I think that's hard at times for people to find. But I don't know, there's something to this idea of openness and then being receptive to what might come your way and that there might be somebody who crosses your path who you would work with in the most unexpected ways. Mm -hmm. So true. So true. Yeah, it's awesome. Going back to your idea, Liz, about sometimes not even wanting to learn solo music or wanting to do anything in that room. COVID, again, kind of forced us all <laughs> to have to really live with ourselves Very true. a lot more. Yeah, And that was part of what my whole Corona Chronicles project was. I'm the only person in this house, that and my, at the time, three-year-old son, is just us and this piano. <laughs> Dark days. Yeah, those are dark times. But I had to keep playing. And you're just gonna learn something solo. That's, that's all you have. And of course, through being able to still express myself musically, that definitely was worth its weight in gold. But still being able to share my music with others. And then it actually ended up leading to many collaborative opportunities because people heard me or people connected to me in in some way. Sometimes it might take a pandemic (laughs) to force us to, to live with ourselves just for a little while. Yeah, that's really well put. That's a good point too, because I know for sure the summer of 2020, I experienced a brand new kind of relationship with my viola not with anybody else or any group that I was playing with or anything else, but that relationship changed in some beautiful ways. And actually my process right now is the time I spend alone practicing, how do I create a new way of engaging that is more in line with what brings me joy or even just comes more naturally to me. So I'm doing some experimenting with that. Liz, thank you so much for talking with us today. Yeah, thank you. This was a lot of fun. I love your podcast. And I I really do love the dynamic that you two have also just in the podcast, but in general, too. You two are just really wonderful, lovely people. And this has been a lot of fun. And we feel the same about you. Yes, 100%. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our season three sponsors, Arcrest, Aria Lights, and Potter Violins. Another thanks to Alto Clef Gifts 
where you can purchase viola-centric shirts and mugs and a variety of other fun items featuring our beloved Alto Club. The viola-centric theme music was written and produced by J.P. Wogeman and is performed by Steph and myself. You can support our future episodes by supporting our sponsors through our PayPal link or Venmo and by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And please consider sharing your favorite episodes with your music-loving friends. Thanks again for listening. Let's talk soon. Let's talk soon.